Well, welcome everyone. It's good to have you here at Easter at Valley. We're very excited about this weekend. And if this is your first time here to Valley, we are so glad you've come. And uh, we've been praying for you and working very hard to uh, get the place all you know, prettied up for you and do everything that we can uh, to prepare for such a wonderful weekend of celebration over just the most wonderful time. So I want to talk about that tonight. I want to talk about what it is that God has done. What is our testimony? Well, we're going to call this series or this sermon today empty. Now, I know when you're thinking of that word, that might not elicit the best of feelings or maybe get you all excited. But before you're done tonight, before I'm done, before we're done together, God is going to do something fresh in your heart. That's what I'm praying. That's what I've been praying. The story of Christ's passion is so powerful, isn't it? It's absolutely powerful. You know, we never get tired of hearing this story, and we celebrate it over and over and over again because we know what it has done. We know the impact that it has on our lives. But you know what? If you're like me, you've got to be reminded. You've got to be reminded, especially after this last year. Amen. He changed history, our Jesus. He sacrificed, and he has changed the heart of men and women forever. He still does. God demonstrated his wonderful love for mankind in a way that humans can truly emotionally understand it. And that was to die in our place. No greater love. To take our punishment, to die in our place, to take all that we have done was placed upon him. He paid the price for our sins. Without a doubt, it is truly overwhelming. But what happened after? What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? To this day, what makes the story of the cross most powerful is the tomb is empty. This cannot be said of Buddha or Muhammad or Hare Krishna. Their remains, wherever they are, are still in the grave. Not so with our Jesus. We have the Gospels that tell us four times. You only need really two or three to, to establish a witness. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? But we got four that let us know it did happen. And the tomb is without question empty. He is alive. So what does that empty tomb mean to us? Well, if we look at three witnesses in Scripture I'm going to share with you tonight, I think what we'll see is that God wants to get deep into our emotions here tonight. He wants to remind us. And looking, past, you know, looking at this whole last year, he wants to remind us that he's still alive. He's still with us. He still wants to impact us in getting right into our stuff to really bring us fresh new joy, perhaps even to bring a fresh revival to you into our whole nation. I want to look at these three people tonight. I want to look at Mary. I want to look at Thomas, and I want to look at Peter. And I'm going to call them something that, that might discourage you at first glance, but you'll see, you'll understand. But I'm going to call Mary, Mary the depressing or the despairing. That's the better word. And I'm going to call Thomas the doubter. Of course, you know about him. And then Peter the depressed. But let's look at Mary first. Now, this is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was set free, as we know, from many demonic uh, 
inhabitations. She was, she was set free. And so this woman was absolutely, without a doubt, grateful to what Jesus had done for her. So when Jesus, of course, was brutally murdered in front of her, it absolutely turned her life upside down. She felt like all was stripped from her, because she was all in now. She was in bondage, and then Jesus set her free. And from all accounts, what we understand is that she followed, and she was a part of the entourage of women who cared for his needs. She was all in. She was a part of the ministry in every way. And yet when Jesus died, you can imagine how she must have absolutely been despairing. It's like, it's gone. All that I had thrown into, all that I had bought into, all that, I, that was my hope and my future, gone. She was probably there when his body was dressed and prepared for the grave. So the first day of the week, what does Mary do? I mean, it, it, the sun is just barely coming up. She makes her way to the grave. She's probably just going to just, just be there in her distress, in her despair, and just, just weep. And probably in her mind, she's thinking, I'm just going to die there because there is nothing else. But when she gets there, what does she find? The stone has rolled away. And so she's so absolutely shocked. What is the first thought? And because of her despair and her distress, what is the first thing she thinks has happened? Well, they've taken his body. They're going to desecrate him. Have they not done enough to brutally do what they've done? They're going to steal his body and, and do something terrible with it? So she runs back finds Peter and John and says, they've taken his body. They run. Peter and John are running. The Bible tells us that John outruns Peter. I'm not sure why John wanted us to know that, but the boy had some legs. That's good, though. You only find it in the, in the Gospel of John, which I thought was interesting. But he outruns Peter, and he gets there first, but he doesn't want to go in. Why? I mean, think about John. John is the most emotional one. John doesn't want to go in there and see Jesus' body there again, he already saw him brutally murdered. He doesn't want to go in. He sees the stone rolled away. He's not going in. He says, I'm not, I don't want to see him. I don't. But Peter, he walks, he, he goes right in. Because you can imagine, Peter's just like, I've got to know what's going on. He walks in, the grave, he's not there. The, the bandages are still there. The, uh, the, the, the uh, grave clothes are still there. He walks out. John comes in. John sits, walks in. He sees what's going on. And it says that John believed what did he believe? They just believed that, well, he's gone. We don't know what's going on. And so they go back, probably a whole lot slower than what they had come. Mary stays. Mary just can't believe it. She's staring at it. She's absolutely destroyed. And so as she's sitting there weeping, all of a sudden, two angels appear. And she's looking at these angels, and she probably can't, she's probably thinking she's hallucinating. She is so distressed. And they just ask her, you know, what's wrong? Well, they've taken, they've taken my Lord and Savior. And then out of nowhere, she hears a voice. And it's Jesus behind her at the entrance. And he says, essentially, what's wrong? Why are you crying? She says, they've taken my... She thinks, the Bible tells us, she thinks it's a gardener. And so she's just going, well, they've taken him. Do you know? Do you have any idea where they've taken his body? And here's what's most powerful. In just one word, he says, Mary. Like he had done hundreds of times before. 
Just one word. Because see, that's all it takes. When you're distressed and you've lost everything and you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, you have no idea whether you're going to live or whether you're going to die. You don't know what has happened to your life. Just one word. Your name. My name. To hear Jesus speak it. And when she realizes it, she turns and she rushes to him and she wants to grab a hold of him. And Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. You know, I am you know, the pure spotless lamb. I've got to go present myself to the Father. You know, where you, you caught me right midstream in this, this whole prophetic, awesome event that you've been reading about for hundreds and hundreds of years. Hold on, Mary. She runs back and she says, you're not going to believe it. He's alive. The guys are still not there. That very night, Jesus appears to all of them. But I want to look at Mary just for a moment before we move on to this next individual. In a word, in a word like a vacuum cleaner, like, like a, a restorative power, what does that empty tomb represent to Mary? Well, now forever she will know that my Savior and my God is alive. And he knows me and he loves me. He hasn't abandoned me and everything. And, and you know, when you think of, of her circumstances, did they really change? They didn't. Does it tell us that Jesus said, hey, look, this is the way it's going to be for you for the next 10 years. All is going to be restored. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. No, not a word. Because she didn't need it. And neither do we. We just need to know that Jesus loves us. We just, need, we just need to know he's there. And you know what? When there's distress, when despair comes upon us, let's just cut to the chase here, folks. Let's just, let's just speak it. It was fear. That's what it was. Mary had no clue. They had taken the body. The grave is, is empty. They, her, her, all is lost. She doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But I'm telling you, folks, when you know that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, when you know that he knows you by name, and all that he said is still yes and amen, regardless of what has happened. He's in heaven, folks. He's leaning toward coming when the Father gives him the okay to come again. But I want to remind you tonight that no matter what you have experienced over the past year or the last several months, no matter what, you have, what has swum through your mind, what you have thought about, what you've read, what you've seen on television, whatever others, and the enemy has whispered into your ear, you only need to hear one word, and that's your name spoken by Jesus. And I'm telling you, in the fearful watches of the night, to just hear him say, David, Chris, Mary, it's all you need. Because in that, we have hope. We have a future. And you may ask me, well, how, Pastor David, how? He kicked Satan's butt. He defeated death. Folks, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but that's enough for me. <laughs> that's enough for me. Especially knowing that death has been conquered. It's done. It has been defeated. The bell has rung. They've dragged its body out of the ring. It's over. Death is no longer your enemy. It no longer has power over you. It is nothing to be feared. 
in an instant, in one name. Now, there's another part of person in this story that just stands out like a sore thumb. That very night, that very night, the first night, day of the week, the first night of the week, Jesus appears to all of them. But there's one guy missing, and it's Thomas. Now, why wasn't Thomas there? Well, we can only offer a little bit of conjecture, but we know about Thomas, don't we? Thomas is that half glass, half empty kind of guy. He was always looking at the events all throughout the story as being one who just couldn't quite get there. He, he had to be impressed. He had to, he had to be shown exactly what was going on. He had to have that confidence spelled out for him. He had to have that assurance before he could really buy in. And so they call him Doubting Thomas. He wasn't there. Jesus appears to them, and, and of course, all of their hearts are immediately like, amen? You are alive, Jesus, and this is, this is incredible. And so many things are happening in their minds. They, they, all those words he had spoken about the temple being raised in three days, all the different promises in, in, in the prophets, they're just, their minds are just like elect, electrically uh, on fire of all the thoughts and all the words all coming together. The revelation is beyond imagination. But Thomas is not there to experience it. Why? Because... Thomas is a doubter. He was not there because, you know what? Doubt. Doubt causes us to give up, doesn't it? When there is a despairing situation, when there is a struggle, when you feel like your world has been shaken, when all that you believed is being, is, is, is an illusion, when all that you thought that you had spent your life believing and walking in, when that is shaken, you just walk away. And that's exactly what Thomas did. He didn't show up for church that night. He wasn't there, and so he didn't get a chance to see Jesus. Now, you may just say, well, too bad. Thomas, you're out. We're back down to 11, guys. Well, I guess it would have been 10, right? Got to go find us two new ones. So we look at Thomas, and you might even think, yeah, gosh, man, the guy gave up. He pulled away. He didn't show up. A week later... A week later, Thomas does show up again. And probably because he started hearing the news and seeing the joy, he started hearing, hearing all this, this, this news about Jesus showing up, and he literally just says, look, I am not going to believe it until I can touch the holes in his hands. And I love it. One week later, they're all gathered together, and Thomas is there, and Jesus shows up. And he walks right up to Thomas, and he says, hey, Thomas, come here. Go ahead, put your finger right in there. Go ahead. And while you're at it, go ahead and stick your hand in my side right there. You, you saw it happen. You know what, what, what happened on that, on that day. Put your hand in there. There's no indication that Thomas ever did that. He didn't need to. He gets one look at Jesus. He says his name. And with just those words coming out of his mouth, I love Thomas's response. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't put his finger in the hole. He doesn't respond to anything that Jesus has said. He just goes right to what Jesus was looking for. And what was that? My Lord and my God. He shot past all that doubt and went right to what Jesus was after from the beginning. Folks, when we get in a situation where we're doubting, 
where we're struggling. What can you believe? Is it, you know, why isn't Jesus coming again? Why isn't he changing our circumstances? Why hasn't he gone before us? Why, why did this person have to pass on and go on to be with the Lord? Why, why, why? We've got so many questions, and we sit there, and, and in those questions, doubt can begin to creep up in our life. And you know, doubt, it's bad stuff, folks. Bad, doubt is bad stuff because it separates us from Jesus. It pulls us away from him. And yet, if you find yourself in doubt here tonight, if you find yourself in a place where maybe even you're sitting here and you're, you, were, you were listening to the music and, and you saw some of the exuberation around you and people filled with joy and you're still back there like Thomas saying, yeah, whatever. I don't know what they're all excited about. Folks, what is it going to take? Now, for Thomas, it took Jesus to appear right in front of him and say, there they are. And he says, I believe. He does say it. Now, what is important about John chapter 20, the last verse in there, and that, right after that, Jesus says this, and this is important to you and me. He says, blessed are those who see and believe. He says, but even more blessed are those who are going to believe without seeing. Folks, that's you and me here tonight. So can you imagine the life change and transformation that Thomas went through and what he saw, what he experienced? Exponentially increase that with the kind of blessing you and I are going to receive tonight as a result of believing without seeing and believing that the tomb is empty, believing that Jesus Christ is alive, and believing that he is coming again, and believing that he did die on the cross for your sins, and that he loves you, and that all he has to do is say your name. But folks, he, he is looking for a response. And it's simple. My Lord and my God. What does that mean? Folks, that is utter surrender is what it is. My Lord means I'm here to serve. I'm giving you all of my life, every bit of it. Nothing held back. And my God, of course, moves right to establish who Jesus is and why his sacrifice mattered and why it had to be God's son and why, and that was the only way it could be a perfect sacrifice. And to know that it is finished. Folks, we've got to get past the doubt. Doubt is over. Doubt is done. There's no more room for the gray area anymore. There's, there's no more room for us to wonder, to, to, to question. It's, it's over. We are quickly hurtling into a time in history where you feel it. You feel the electricity in the air. Jesus said no one know, would know the day nor the hour, but we would know the season. He would know the season. You know, I have people remind me all the time. I'll say, well, Pastor David, no one knows the day nor the hour. And I'll say, yeah, but you know the season. That means when the, the air starts to turn, you feel those winds blowing. When you see those shadows growing longer, times are, they are a-changing. And that's exactly where we are right now. No more room for that. Don't let doubt eat your lunch anymore. Don't let, let uh, uh, doubt rob you of the joy and the celebration and the experience you can have. Let Jesus say your name. Let him remove it. Because for Thomas, what he needed was complete, utter surrender. And I can guarantee you, from that day forward, Thomas was not the same. 
not the same. Now let's finish tonight by looking at Peter. I call him Peter the depressed. Now why was Peter depressed? Well, we know. Here Peter was the the leader of the band. I mean, the one that Jesus had changed his name, the one who said, you are Peter upon the rock. You're the one I'm going to build the church. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, and you're going, to, you're going to go on to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and you're going to lead, and you're going to do some amazing things, Peter. And yet, he's the one who denies him. And, and we look at that story, and it, it does. It, it doesn't make sense, except when we think about our own life. And so when we look at Peter, let, let, let's just realize what is taking place. Let's go back to the story. Well, Peter was there at the tomb. He saw the empty tomb. Peter was there that night when Jesus appeared. Peter was there one week later when Jesus came again and was talking to Thomas. No word of Peter. No talk of Peter. Why? He's defeated. He's depressed. He's probably sitting there back in the corner the whole time. Not saying a word. In fact, there's no indication that Jesus even says anything to him. It's that elephant in the room. It's that struggle. It is that deep thing inside. Everybody knows. The rest of the guys are all full of joy, and they're laughing and talking and, 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 and connecting, but Peter's holding back. I, I, can't, I can't be a part of this anymore. I'm, what I've done is too much. I denied my Savior. I denied him. Three times I denied him. No. And what did that do? Where, where does that depression comes from, come from? I'll tell you what it is. It's called shame. That's what it was. See, when you go through your life... And, and, and you've committed your life to him. And, and you've been Mary who was despairing and he pulled you out of that despair and you were given new life. And then, and then maybe you went through a period of time of doubt in your life and, and Jesus came and did some kind of a miracle. He showed you his hands and feet in some symbolic way. But shame is tough stuff now. And where does shame come from? It's from sin, of course. It's from walking away from the one who died on the cross for your sins. It happens when you've been with him for three whole years, seeing the most amazing things. People that were blind are now seeing. People who couldn't walk, who are now walking. Demons screeching and coming out of people and them being back in their right mind. Seeing Lazarus being raised from the dead right in front of you. And yet when given an opportunity to say, yes, I'm going to die with you because... You are my life. You're everything. He denies him. He pulls back. You know, folks, the fear of holding on to our life and, you know, none of us really knows what we'll do when the chips are really down. Chips have been kind of down for the last year kind of been down. They were thrown on the table. Where were we? Where were we? What was going on inside our hearts? What was being stirred? Was there a holy indignation? Or did we, uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't know him. I, I'm, I'm not really a part of that church. 
I'm not really part of what's going on over there, you know. Mm -mm. What does that do to us? That shame begins to sneak in, and it begins to rob us of our joy. It begins to rob us of our purpose. It robs us. I mean, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, shame is, is terrible stuff. And I'll tell you why shame is so bad. Because you were never meant to carry it. Not one nanosecond. Never meant to carry it. And that's why it is so destructive to the human soul. But folks, can I remind you tonight that you don't have to walk in it not one millisecond because of what Jesus did for you. Because the way the story goes is that Jesus has got a mission for Peter. Peter goes back to fishing. Because again, that's what shame does. I lost my purpose. I'll just go back to fishing. And that's what he finds, Jesus finds him doing. He's out there in the boat, and Jesus, you know, the story he calls out, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And what Jesus asks him to do in fisherman's lingo, apparently, it was a foolish thing to do. He'd been out all night, you don't fish in the day, and you certainly don't throw it out in front of all the fish where the shadow is. It was not going to produce anything. So they're all just like, yeah, whatever, man, just listen to the weird guy on the beach. Just throw it. Maybe he'll go away. Then they realize it's him. 153 fish. Busting the nets. They realize it's him. Peter just jumps in the water. It's one of those moments where he's, he's here. He's probably been thinking that whole time, you know, I just wish I could get another chance. I just wish somehow Jesus would come back to me and give me another chance to redeem what I did. And me walking away from him, walking away of what God is, what Jesus did for me. Give me another chance somehow. And there he is. Jesus rushes to him. He swims to him. He gets up on that beach and he's standing there not knowing what's going to happen next. But I love the conversation. It is so amazing. He says, Peter, (laughs) he says, do you love me? Think about that. He says, do you love me? Jesus did not need to hear him say, please forgive me. (laughs) He didn't. He's the one who died for him for crying out loud. Jesus, in all utter love, is telling Peter, just say the words, buddy, and the shame will be gone. You need to say it for you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. He does it three times. Why does he do it three times? Well, I think we all know. Because he denied him three times. That would forever be Peter's absolute sense of reconciliation. That every one of those darts, every one of those, those disastrous statements would be washed away with the words of Jesus. Just washed. And what he says next is critical. Because he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Then what does he say? Feed my sheep. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Get back to doing what I called you to do, buddy. Let's not deal with the shame anymore. What you've done in your past is done. 
I died on the cross for you because I knew you were going to do it. I died on the cross knowing you were going to do Come on. He's the one who told him he would. I'll never do any. I'll, no, we're never going to let that happen. Peter, before the, the rooster crows, man, you're going to deny me three times. And yet he still died for him. fact of the matter is, folks, I've said this from this pulpit many, many, many times. Sin is not your problem. It's not your problem. He took care of that. Our problem is our willingness to give it all. It's our willingness to not give in to despair. It's our willingness to no longer doubt what it is that he has done. It's our willingness to get back to doing what he's called us to do. The good, the bad, and the ugly. All, none of us here in this room are going to do it perfectly. We're, I mean, look, is anybody going to outdo Peter for crying out loud? You denied the Savior three times and all that you knew, all that you experienced. What a bonehead. So, he loves you. And he wants you to tell him that. See, when we worship, did you know part of worship is giving you a chance to put your shame away? It's your chance to come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what I've done. You know who I am. I love you. And in an instant, under your breath, Lord, would you forgive me for some of the things I did this week? Lord, forgive me. Wash me clean. And in an instant, he's done it. He's already known what you did. He knew what you were going to do before you even did it. But what's most important is that you are like Mary. You rush back to him. You're like Thomas, and you say, Lord, you are my Lord and my God. Forgive my doubt. That we'll be like Peter and say, yes, I do love you. And I'm ready to get back to doing what you've called me to do. In fact, we know Peter is so incredibly restored. He goes on to be an incredible leader of the church. To preach one of the most powerful sermons of all time, 3,000 people coming to Christ as a result. His first sermon out of the box, out of this shame. So folks, tonight, I don't know where you are unless you tell me. Are you, have you been despairing? Have you been struggling with fear? Has fear been tormenting you? Has doubt come out of that? Or has doubt just been a part of your personality? Are, are you that kind of person? Have you been doubting what it is? Because, you know, during this, this, this time of, of fear and darkness, you know, a lot of people's faith has waned. A lot of people have gotten out of the practice of being disciples. And you got to know that that was a part of the enemy's plan, by the way, without question. And perhaps we've let the, the devil fool us in giving into things that have robbed us of our joy and our peace, different kinds of sins, things that we've done in, 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 in being idle. Maybe there are things that have happened that we've given into that have plagued our minds. Well, I want you to, to remind you tonight that Jesus is not here 
to shame you. He's here to restore you. He died for you. That's not going to change. The tomb is empty. And what does the tomb forever remind us of is that he is our joy. He is our Lord and our God. And he is our forgiveness and restoration. And now the energy and impetus to continue to serve him. Serve him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Folks, that needs to be your determination during this Easter weekend is to let him heal you, restore you, and that you come out of the box. You come out of the blots with, Lord, I know you love me, and now I'm ready to get back to doing what you've called me to do. Don't let the enemy rob you of that. Amen? Don't let him. So, folks, I want to pray for us tonight. Because he wants to give us a hope and a future. He wants to give us fresh faith and confidence peace and joy and purpose in him i don't know maybe you came in here tonight and your soul was empty let him fill it let him fill your heart i love what john writes here and i'll finish with this last verse jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in the book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What is our response to that? <laughs> my Lord and my God. Let's stand this evening.